Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9, where we'll be looking at all of chapter 9 and down through verse 16 of chapter 10. As you're turning there, let me remind you just briefly of where we are in the book. Uh, we've been in the Psalms for the last few weeks, so just a reminder of where we're at here in 1 Samuel. The people of Israel have just demanded that Samuel appoint for them a king like all the nations. It seemed an innocent enough request, especially considering that Samuel was getting old and his sons were not fit to lead. But as chapter 8 made clear, the request for a king was anything but innocent. In fact, Israel's demand for a king was actually a rejection of God Himself. And it's that request, that rejection of God's rule, that gives us the context for our passage. Here in chapter 9, the scene shifts. We're introduced to a new character, Saul. But even so, the focus remains on the issue of kingship in Israel. So, with that in mind, let's pick it up here in chapter 9 and see how things progress. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Pekarath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry! He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, for he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. 
When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose. Both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that, when, that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offering and to offer sacrifice of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. 
And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, Saul did not tell him anything. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray now and ask for God's blessing on our time together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, Your inspired, holy, inerrant Word. We ask now that You would give us ears of faith to hear from Your Word, to understand what it is that You have spoken, to see how, Father, it should affect and apply to us that we might live in light of it. We pray that all of this, Father, would be done for our good, for building us up in the faith and for the glory of Christ. Father, keep me from error. Grant Your people discernment that we might hold fast to the truth until the day the Lord Jesus returns. And we pray this in His name and for His sake. Amen. If God were going to change the direction of your life, how would you expect Him to do it? If you knew a divine detour was coming, what form do you think it would take? Maybe a heavenly vision. Or possibly a spectacular encounter that opens new horizons you've never considered. Those might sound like good options since they leave little room for doubt. And indeed, most folks would probably say divine detours happen in extraordinary ways. But there's a problem with that preference for the spectacular. It doesn't make sense of our everyday lives in this world. Think about it, friends. Most of our days are not extraordinary, but normal. Sure, there are times of extraordinary leading in the life of a Christian, but those are few and far between. In fact, most Christians will never personally have an extraordinary encounter themselves. For the most of us, the majority of our days are simply normal. So, if God's leading happens in the spectacular, then it would seem we have very few instances where God is truly leading us. Do you see the problem then? By looking for the spectacular, by looking for the extraordinary, we end up excluding God from everyday life. We live as functional atheists. Well, in God's kindness, our passage today addresses precisely this problem. Here in 1 Samuel 9 and 10, we see God lead His people, not primarily in the spectacular, but in the mundane. It's really quite funny if you think about it. How does God bring Saul to the throne of Israel? Through a handful of runaway donkeys that escape from the family farm and make a break for the hills. That's not exactly how we would initiate a new era in salvation history, is it? But God's methods are not the same as the world's. He delights to work in unexpected ways so that even the mundane stuff of life, like runaway donkeys, becomes the vehicle for His glory. So as we study this passage today, we do so on two levels. First of all, we need to understand the significance of Saul's rise to become the king of Israel. There is much to learn from Israel's first and flawed king. But along with Saul, we also need to see what this passage reveals about the ways of the Lord. In God's leading of Saul and Samuel, we get a snapshot of how God usually works in the lives of His people. 
So with that in mind, I'd like to draw your attention to four truths from this everyday passage. Four truths from this everyday passage. The first is found in verses 1-17 to of chapter 9 where we see God's ordinary providence. God's ordinary providence. As chapter 9 begins, we're introduced to Saul, the son of Kish. Saul has all the appearances of leadership. He comes from a well-to-do family. He's handsome, and he strikes a tall, regal figure. If you were to pick a king based on looks, then you couldn't do any better than Saul. And that fact will prove very significant later in our story. But for such a striking young man, Saul is given a rather ho-hum job. The family donkeys have run away. This was probably not the first time this had happened, so you can imagine what Saul is thinking at this point. Here we go again, looking for those stupid mules. You see, it wasn't a glamorous job. I think that's what you're supposed to take away in verses 3 and 4. It's not a glamorous job. It's mundane. It's normal. It's just everyday life, and Saul has to go do it. But as the passage continues, we see that not only was this job mundane, but it was also unsuccessful. Again, look at verses 3 and 4. Saul and his servant travel all across the territory of Benjamin and Ephraim, but there are no signs of the lost donkeys. Those must have been some fast and clever mules. They can't find them. They're going back and forth. If you look at a map, they're going back and forth across the territory. They can't find the mules. In fact, the entire search seems like a waste of time. But then in verse 5, things begin to turn. There are a number of what appear to be coincidences that change the situation. Notice how it unfolds. In verse 5, they arrive in Zuf. And Saul's servant just happens to remember that there's a prophet who lives in a nearby city. Of all the places that they could end up when their bread runs out, they end up in this town. Then in verse 8, Saul's servant just happens to have some silver they can give to the prophet for his help. Even more fortunate, in verse 11, they just happen to meet some young women at the city gate who point them in the right direction. And then most striking of all, in verse 14, they just happen to enter the city at the precise moment when Samuel the prophet is heading out to the sacrifice. Now you could read these things as simply coincidences. You know, lucky breaks that change Saul's fortunes. But that would miss the entire point of the text. In fact, notice what happens in verse 15. There's a break in the action. The story gets paused. And we get a behind-the-scenes look at what God has been doing. Before Saul even got to the city, the Lord had already told Samuel this would happen. Notice how specific and purposeful the Lord's words are. Verse 16, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. So friends, do you see what has happened? There's more here than lost donkeys. This is the sovereign hand of God moving life according to His purposes. It was God who drove the donkeys from the family farm, and it was God who kept Saul from finding them. And what's more, God's timing in it all was precisely perfect. Think about it. Saul gets to town at just the right moment when Samuel is there. If he had spent one hour longer or one hour less searching for the donkeys, then he would have missed Samuel. In other words, the fruitless search wasn't a waste of time at all. 
it lasted exactly as long as God planned for it to last in order to bring Saul to this point at precisely the right moment. You see, those weren't coincidences that brought Saul to Samuel. It was the sovereign Lord of the creation working out his purposes, even to the point of using some stubborn mules to make it happen. Friends, if that's not how we think of God's sovereignty being applied in everyday life, then we don't understand Him as we ought. He works not just in the big, but in the small. Brothers and sisters, if we have eyes to see it, if we have eyes to see it, there is great comfort for us from these lost donkeys. What might seem pointless to us is often God's preparation for His future provision. This is the application of the doctrine of God's providence. Remember, God's providence is His purposeful work to guide and sustain all of history. Guide and sustain all of history. From the rise and fall of nations to the wandering of lost donkeys. Everything moves according to the plan and purpose of God. That doesn't mean life always makes sense. And it certainly doesn't mean things are always easy. When Saul was wandering through Ephraim, I'm sure his life seemed rather pointless at that moment. But it wasn't. The Lord was working even in that fruitless season. In fact, that's what we should take away here. Our Heavenly Father is always working. He's always working. He doesn't waste anything. What might seem pointless to us is often God's preparation for His future provision. And yet, we must also confess that we don't always see how those purposes are working. Friends, this is one of the difficulties of God's providence. It often becomes clear only after the fact. Only after the fact. And that's why we have to return day by day to the simple call of the everyday Christian life. To walk by faith and not by sight. Even when there seems to be little point, we remind ourselves there are no pointless seasons. In every season, the Father loves us and is working out His purposes. Brothers and sisters, that kind of self Preaching is what we should be regularly engaged in. It's the task of proclaiming the truth to ourselves day by day so that we walk by faith. And listen, when it seems like you can't preach that truth to yourself, remember the community of saints you've been given in the church. This is the blessed grace of the body of Christ. When we can barely utter a prayer, we find a brother and a sister and we ask them to pray for us. When we can scarcely remember the truth, we gather with God's people and we let the songs and the confessions of the church become our proclamation of the truth. If we're one body, then your voice is my voice and your prayer is my prayer. That's how faith is sustained when the donkeys are lost. That's how faith is sustained when life seems pointless. Not on our own, but together, each of us laboring to walk by faith. So I pray we don't get lost as we watch Saul search for those lost donkeys. I know it's a long passage. I ran out of breath reading it. But I pray we don't get lost watching Saul search. Instead, let's fix our eyes on God's good providence at work in ordinary life. Ordinary life, friends. And let's remember that's how the Father works in our lives as well. Even in the mundane, God is present and He is working. 
Let's linger for a moment more on verse 16 of chapter 9 and notice our second truth. God's enduring compassion. God's enduring compassion. Honestly, friends, verse 16 blows me away. The Lord tells Samuel to anoint Saul, but then notice what else God says in the second half of the verse. Listen to what the Lord says. He, referring to the king, He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So God will raise up a king to work salvation for His people. That's the one job of Israel's king. That's his central task. His reign is not for himself, but for others. The king comes to save. But did you catch why God establishes this king? Listen again. Why is He going to raise up a king? For I have seen My people because their cry has come to Me. That is an astonishing statement. Remember, just one chapter earlier, the people of Israel rejected God in favor of a king like the nations. They turned their back on Him. They spurned Him. And yet, what do we find God doing here in chapter 9? Listening to His people. Hearing their cries. God has not turned His back on them. Even though they have spurned God, the Lord will not spurn His people. His mercy endures. That doesn't excuse Israel's sin, but it does reveal the heart of God. His compassion is stronger than their rebellion. Do you remember that wonderful statement from Psalm 103? Where David says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. Do you remember that sweet verse, Psalm 103? Well, I read recently an Old Testament scholar who pointed out that our English word great doesn't really capture David's point. The better word would be strong or even mighty. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so strong, so mighty is God's steadfast love towards those who fear Him. That's the truth on display here in verse 16. God's compassion is not simply present, it's strong. It's not simply there, it's mighty. It endures and pursues His people even in their rebellion. Friends, if you're here this morning knowing that you have strayed from the Lord, I hope you hear the mercy He holds out to you in His Word at this point. All the stuff of life has brought you to this point. I hope that's clear at this moment. You didn't just happen to be here today. And now the Lord is reminding you of His compassion. Won't you turn to Him in repentance and faith in Christ? Why wander any longer when the Lord stands ready with mercy that is stronger than your sin? Why stay lost, friend? Turn to this gracious God and trust in the Savior He has provided. You don't have to get your life straightened out before the Lord will hear your prayer. Right now, at this moment, you can cry to God in repentance and faith. It's His mercy and grace that even sparks that desire to pray in the first place. It's His compassion that is compelling you in right now. The tug on your soul is the grace of God. So turn to Him this morning. If you have strayed, turn to Him this morning and believe in what He has provided. A Savior. Verse 16 shows us God's enduring compassion and I pray the Spirit would give us all eyes of faith to embrace that truth as our own.
That brings us then to our third truth. God's clear confirmation. God's clear confirmation. While the events that brought Saul to Samuel were rather ordinary, their encounter is not. In fact, from the outset, Samuel seems intent on making clear that something significant is happening. Beginning in verse 20, Samuel puts the spotlight on Saul in three ways. First of all, Samuel makes a stunning proclamation. Look at the end of verse 20. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul shouldn't worry about the donkeys anymore because he is about to have all that he needs. It's a stunning proclamation. Samuel then goes on to give Saul a prime position. Notice verse 22. Samuel seats Saul and his servant at the head of the table. This was a private feast, invitation only. But not only is Saul brought in, he's positioned above everybody else. Again, something significant is happening here. And finally, Samuel gives Saul a choice portion. Look at verse 23. Samuel tells the cook to bring Saul the portion of meat that had been set aside. This cut was normally reserved for the priest, but here it's given to Saul. It's an indication of the importance of the office he will soon receive. So proclamation, position, portion, Samuel goes out of his way to show everyone something significant is happening. But at this point, Saul is still in the dark. It's not until the next day that he gets some insight. Notice verse 1 of chapter 10. Saul's servant has gone on ahead, so it's just Samuel and Saul at this point. And in this private moment, Samuel anoints Saul as prince over Israel. That word prince is normally used to designate the king in waiting. Right? So Saul is the king in waiting. The public ceremony will come later, but for now, here in private, Samuel anoints Israel's first king. The anointing with oil is a picture of God's choice and God's provision. God has chosen Saul, and God will now give Saul what he needs for the work. As you might expect, this would have been quite the news to Saul. Remember, he's just out looking for donkeys. He's not looking for a kingdom. In fact, look back at verse 21 of chapter 9. Saul had a hard time considering that such bountiful provision would be given to him. So how much more difficult might it be for him to believe that God's anointing now rests on him as king? He's he's a nobody. How am I going to be the king? So, to confirm the anointing, Samuel tells Saul he will encounter three signs on his way home. These are not general predictions. In fact, if you read verses 2 through 6 in chapter 10, what stands out is how detailed the signs are. Did you hear it when we read? Samuel speaks about specific numbers of people at specific places, having specific provisions to do specific things. And that's the point. These signs will be clear confirmation to Saul that the Lord indeed has set him apart as Israel's king. Then notice what happens in verse 9 of chapter 10. And all these signs came to pass that day. All the specifics happened just as Saul said they would, and they happened that very day. Friends, do you see the Lord's clear confirmation at this point? He has not left Saul in the dark. He has not left Saul in the dark. God has revealed very clearly that this is His doing, and therefore Saul should respond in faith to what God has done. Just to put it really bluntly, later when we see Saul fail as a 
as the king, he has no excuse for not knowing what to do. God has revealed his will very clearly to Saul. Now, I am beyond thankful that we have come to this passage today because this point in particular is a good example of how not to make application from the Old Testament. How not to do it. We might be tempted to read this moment from Saul's life and conclude that the key to knowing God's will is to see signs that confirm it. This goes back to that preference for the spectacular we talked about at the beginning. It would be easy to draw a straight line from Saul's life to mine and say, well, if I want to know God's will, then I just need to look for the signs that confirm it. But friends, that conclusion misreads the passage. Remember, Saul lived at a different era than we do. He lived under the Old Covenant. God's Word had not been completely revealed and recorded in Scripture. So the signs Saul received were uniquely necessary because of the time in which he lived. What's more, Saul himself was a unique figure in salvation history. Even with all of his flaws, Saul had a unique role to play. And therefore, this is very important, therefore, we cannot simply lift the things of Saul's life and then lay them over ours and say, see, this is what the application is. That's not how the Bible works. It doesn't work that way. Instead, brothers and sisters, we must remember that what we've been given is something much greater than what Saul received. We have the complete final Word of God in the Old and New Testaments. We are not dependent on signs to confirm God's Word. We have God's Word fully confirmed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our signs are an empty tomb in the indwelling Spirit. Our confidence is that long ago in many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. That is our confidence. So let me put it very clearly, just very clearly, to know God's will, we do not need to turn life into a quest for the mystical. We do not need to read the signs. I know that that feels very spiritual, but it's actually missing the point of the Bible. Both what the Bible teaches and what the Bible is. Now, knowing God's will is actually much clearer than that. We need to read God's Word in faith, seek God's help in prayer, and listen to God's wisdom through the counsel of our brothers and sisters in the church. That's how we know the will of God. Through His Word, through prayer, and through the wisdom of the body of Christ. That's how God's will for our lives is confirmed. Not in the spectacular or the mystical, but in the ordinary ways of the Christian life. Ah, what a gift it is to have the Bible. What a gift it is to have the Bible and to know the Scriptures and to stand on them in faith. Friends, there are many things wrong with the so-called charismatic movement that looks for signs and spectacular in the workings of the world. But one of the key things that's wrong is that they misunderstand what this book is. Not just what it teaches, but what it is. It is the Word of God confirmed fully in the person of Jesus Christ. A high view of Christ protects us from this fruitless quest for the mystical. God gave 
clear confirmation to Saul, and from his life we're reminded of the even greater confirmation we have received in the Scriptures and in Christ. Well, friends, let's consider one final truth from the text. In verse 9 and following in chapter 10, we see God's empowering Spirit. God's empowering Spirit. Samuel told Saul to expect three signs on the way home. All three happen, but it's only the last sign that receives attention in the text. Notice verse 10. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he prophesied among them. This is the most significant sign of all. That's why it's the only one that's described. Saul is empowered by the Spirit to prophesy. We're not told what the prophesying entails. Probably some sort of musical aspect since there are instruments present. But the content is not as important as the act itself. The moment is so surprising that the people of Saul's hometown don't really know how to respond. Notice their question in verse 11. Is Saul now among the prophets? They can't fathom that this would be the son of Kish that they know who went off looking for lost donkeys and comes back prophesying. They can't even fathom it. It's completely unexpected, and that seems to be part of the point. This is not something Saul could have manufactured. Truly, the Lord has been at work here. The Spirit's empowering confirms Saul in his office. This raises an important question for us to consider. How are we to understand this moment from Saul's life? The text talks about him being turned into another man and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. But if you're familiar with Saul's story, then surely you know that things do not end well. And they do not end well quickly. Saul fails as a king. And the Lord ends up removing the Spirit of the Lord from Saul. And so that that whole kind of tragic train wreck of a life should make us slow down here and ask, what exactly does it mean when it says that Saul was turned into another man? and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. What exactly does that mean? Well, first of all, we must be careful not to read a New Testament theology of regeneration back into Saul's experience. Regeneration means to be born again by the work of the Holy Spirit so that you're indwelt by the Spirit of God and counted among the sons and daughters of the living God. We shouldn't read that back into what happened to Saul. Remember, The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a new covenant blessing. In fact, it is the new covenant blessing. The mark that God's redemptive purposes have come to pass in Jesus Christ. So when the Spirit rushes on Saul, don't read that as his conversion. In other words. Don't read that as his conversion. Instead, we need to recognize that under the old covenant, the Spirit's presence was often limited to a particular time for a particular purpose. The Spirit's presence was limited to a particular time for a particular purpose. So the Spirit of God would come upon a person for a time in order to do a job. Like the two men who helped construct the tabernacle. Like Saul here in this text. That's what's happening here. This is God empowering Saul for the work of kingship. This is a moment of equipping. This is why when Saul falls as king, the Lord takes away his spirit. This is a moment of equipping. God is giving Saul what he needs to carry out 
his calling as the king. So in in light of that, what are we to take away from this moment? Saul lives under the old covenant. We live under the new. What's, What's the connection then with us from the empowering of the Spirit here? Well, there are certainly some things that we could say about the blessing of the new covenant and how as believers we have received the Spirit in full measure. That is certainly true and it's an incredible blessing for which we should regularly give thanks to God and one that we probably take too lightly. But as our time draws to a close, I cannot help but think of a contrast at this point. I think this is the primary application. It's a contrast between King Saul and a later king, a greater king, the Lord Jesus. Consider the differences between the two men. The differences are striking. Saul was tall and handsome. The Lord Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Saul came from a wealthy family. The Lord Jesus came from humble beginnings and had nowhere to lay his head. Saul tasted the Spirit in part, only to fail in his task as king. The Lord Jesus walked in the power of the Spirit his entire life, all the way to the cross. And on the cross, the Lord Jesus did what God promised His King would do. He saved His people once and for all, not from the hand of the Philistines, but from sin and death and hell. You see, friends, that's how we must read this passage as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul the king will be a failure. In fact, every human king and leader is a failure. There's only one king who can save. The Lord Jesus. And His story, the story of the Gospel, runs through even this everyday passage. So, my friends, I close with a prayer and a call to faith. May God give us eyes to see Christ the King, and may God the Holy Spirit empower us to continue following Christ by faith, not just in the spectacular, but in the every day, all the way until the end. Amen. Let's pray.